as long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Potomy app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Uh, anecdotally, a lot of people I know, friends and family, have either come down with or are reporting people in their personal circles that have COVID right now. And COVID is on the rise. There's been a spike of it. I'm under quarantine here at the Casa de Cantu because of because of COVID right now. I have a COVID patient in my house. And uh, so to talk about this and the spike that we seem to be hit with right now on uh, 710KURV, is Dr. Ivan Melendez, the Hidalgo County Health Authority. So what's the what's the status right now? Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on and bringing you up with the latest and greatest info on this so problem that just refuses to go away. And everyone agrees the pandemic is over. That is the exponential growth of cases. But now it's become endemic, which means it's here. It's not going away. And although the numbers are not what we were having before, it's certainly creating quite a problem. Across the country, the, the last month in the United States, the cases have gone up about 15%. And we're talking primarily hospitalizations because just people t- turning positive, like my daughter, like three families that I know, uh, difficult to tell because who's testing? Are they reporting? How many negatives? How many positives? No one reports. So we may report a 1,000 people that tested positive, but how many didn't? So knowing how many people are really tested positive, it's quite difficult. That's why we always fall back on hospitalizations because it's a measurable number and we can try to extrapolate what that means. So in the United States, we have a 15% increase during the last uh, two weeks, last month. In the, our county of Hidalgo, we have 100% increase. That's correct. Ten days ago, we had 30 people in the hospital. Today, we have 63 uh, 14 uh, people below 18, and the rest are adults, including some in the ICU. I've even admitted two on my own service during the last two days. So we know across the board that things are increasing. As you know, in the summer, because people tend to travel as a primary reason, we always have an increase, uh, and then it comes down before it goes back up in fall and winter. Um, this year, our increase of 15% across the country is actually less than the previous summers in 2020. But in our county of Hidalgo County, the numbers of going up in 100% in 10 days of people hospitalized is quite impressive and worries us of why, what is going to happen in fall and winter when we again expect to see these numbers to go up. I guess the question is why? Why are we seeing these numbers escalate? Well, let's, let's look at the human aspect of it and let's look at the viral aspect of it. From the human aspect of it, our booster uh, compliance is only 17%. That means that 83% of the people in our community have not uh, been up to date on their booster. And what does that even mean? That means that immunity from either vaccine or natural immunity when you measure antibodies seems to last about 10 months. 
So 83% of the people in our community do not appear to be protected in a way that keeps them from getting infected. The other reason it's in the summer, and as we mentioned, there's a lot of travel, other parts of the world. And of course, we know that with um, the heat, the way that it's been most recently, no one can be outdoors. We go from building to building, and we all know that being inside in poorly ventilated areas, i.e. airplanes, airports, movie theaters, that's going to increase. And I really think the most important reason why uh, as our behavior in humans uh, is contributing to an increase is because of our community exhaustion. We're just all exhausted with the three-and-a-half, almost four-year history, 5,000 deaths in our community of, of, of COVID. And, and, of course, the social media myths, those lies that continue to permeate the viruses and the political aspect of it. From the viral perspective, I think it's really from a nerdy perspective and that this particular virus has proved to be a champion in its quick and very effective mutations. As you know, the objective of anything that's alive, human beings or viruses, is to continue to have progeny, for viruses to continue to replicate. So the ancestral virus that killed so many of our community members remember moved into the alpha mutation, then to the delta mutation, then to the Omicron mutation. Most recently, we have the F0151, the XBB, and last month, the EG5, known as the Eris. If you remember, Eris is the goddess of chaos and strife in Greek mythology, and so the EG5 has been named Eris and has been responsible from 20 to 25 cases. Unfortunately, now we're seeing a new mutation called the BA2.86, and this has three dozen or 36 mutations as opposed to the nine mutations. What this means is, is that this virus is learning how to be much more infectious and, yes, fortunately, less lethal because what good is a mutation if it's going to kill your host? And so we see in the past we would say, well, perhaps for every person in the hospital, maybe there's 25 that are not in the hospital. Now with 63 in the hospital, we know that it's a lot more that are out in the community because they're not getting sick enough to be admitted to the hospital. So all these numbers are, you know, for those of us who follow this, are really uh, quite, quite impressive. Joining us on 710 KURV is Dr. Ivan Melendez, the Hidalgo County Health Authority. And yeah, I know it's back to school time too, so I'm sure that's got a uh, some sort of factor to it as well. But I'm, I'm curious, do you know how we're doing on our, our supply for uh, Paxlovid? Yeah, so Paxlovid, as you know, is an antiviral combination that uh, people who are considered to be at high risk groups and do not have any kidney disease and their liver is in pretty good shape, it's been recommended and uh, currently has been really the, uh, one of the very few uh, bright spots to curtail the extents of it. Unfortunately, more than half the people cannot tolerate it because the nausea, the vomiting, the diarrhea, and the lead taste that it leaves in your mouth. And interestingly, with the new um, BA2.86 virus that's uh, now, I believe, going to be the next uh, mutation, we've added, the CDC has added to those those uh, symptoms of, of what? Of scratchy throat, coughing fever, guess what? Now conjunctivitis, nausea, and diarrhea is one of the symptoms of the new strain. So when you have a strain that is causing nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, gastrointestinal issues, and now Paxlovid, which that's one of the main side effects, it's not a very good combination. 
I have not had any reported uh, problems or, or concerns about the availability of the Paxlovid, nor have we had any reported problems about the validity, or excuse me, the availability of the vaccines. Let's remember that the ancestral vaccine for the first virus really is not even any, it's not even recommended anymore. And you remember when we, we talked, I think you and I, about the bivalent vaccine, BA4, BA5, about six months ago that we were so excited about. Well, now in the middle to late September, there'll be a new vaccine that is going to be a monovalent vaccine. That is one strain, the XBB strain. And so the vaccine experts, what they do, they've, they've all agreed, we need to have a new vaccine. It takes about six weeks to develop a new vaccine. And then the question is, what will be those strains that are the most active during fall and winter, and how can we prepare for it? So we believe that these new variants uh, will be susceptible, and early studies have shown that the new vaccine coming out in the middle to late September will cover the new strains. And, of course, long ago we figured out that even people with vaccines were getting sick, but what, what is undoubtedly statistically reproducible is that most of the people that get vaccinated do not end up in the hospital and do not end up dying. So it decreases the acuity of the disease. And let's not forget the long-term effect of COVID. So many of us who have had COVID, in my case, three times, we suffer from long-term effects, which I think everyone's familiar with. Fatigue, lassitude, weakness, debility, loss of uh, smell, loss of taste, some anxiety. And so we know that the effects of this virus is not only short-term, but it's also long-term. I'm looking at Davis if you had a question or not. Um, Dr. Ivan Melendez joining us on uh, 710KURB. Go ahead, Davis. Go ahead. Uh, talk a little bit about the uh, long COVID. I've read references to people still suffering from it. Uh, medicine doesn't know why or they're not, they're not sure what produces long COVID in some and not in others. It's very debilitating. I don't know if that's all long COVID or just some. What do you know about it? Yeah, so long COVID is one of those diseases that it's been somewhat difficult to specifically say these are the signs and symptoms because people, we don't live in, on islands. We don't live in isolation. So the question is, how much is, of it is anxiety, depression, fatigue, lassitude, and how much of it is really the effect of the virus? So we look at inflammatory markers that help us to see if there's really an anatomical or physiological uh, effect, and there are. If you measure sedimentation rates, CRP, eosinophilia, uh, these are, these are uh, blood uh, tests that can tell us that there's an inflammatory process going on. And we see that in these people that have these symptoms of fatigue, lassitude, weakness, debility, that these, uh, these markers are, are notably elevated. So I don't believe that you can separate mind and body. I don't believe that uh, you can, uh, there's, there's always going to be a psychological influence on someone coming down with disease. But there is no question, at least in my mind, and in most people who do this for on a daily basis, that there definitely is an associated long-term effect. And how many people? It's on, some studies say 10%, some say 20%, even in children, of a long-term mm. sequela from this disease. And this is what I think a lot of people we forget all the time because we're so focused on right now the numbers and, of course, what is the risk 
tolerance to the vaccine versus the disease. So I hope I answered your question. Yes. I sure did. Thanks a lot for spending some time with us as usual. That's Dr. Ivan Melendez, the Hidalgo County Health Authority, joining us on Newstalk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on Newstalk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids are running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Meanwhile, we're joined by Bob Price from Breitbart.com. Uh, Some of the border stories that are posted right now. One of them is an exclusive headline says Texas guardsman shot across the border due to, Oh, he fired across the border. That's more radio accurate, I guess, but for uh, due to cartel gunmen assaulting migrants, according to one of their sources, Bob price joins us now. So what's the story here? Well, you know, of course, everybody tried to politicize this immediately in the El Paso area, um, especially some certain Democrat state Senator out there. But, one thing that I'd ask people to do whenever something like this happened is wait for the facts to come out before you rush to judgment on something. And in I this agree. case, what happened is here's a, a Texas National Guardsman that witnessed an assault by cartel gunmen against a group of migrants who were about to cross the border from, from Juarez into El Paso. And he sees this guy attacking a migrant with a machete. And what would you do? I mean, you're sitting there with you got an AR uh, M16 or M5 rifle in your hands. You see somebody that looks like they're about to murder or severely injure somebody uh, on the other side of the border. What would you do? I know what I'd do, and I'd do what he did, and that is he fired a single shot across the river and stopped the threat. Oh, so he was successful in the attempt. Oh yes, he he shot the guy. Uh, according to the medical the health department in in uh, Juarez uh, the attacker the assailant uh, sustained a, uh, a through and through gunshot wound to the right leg how did the how did this affect the rest of the 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 migrants that were there and any other um, alleged cartel guys that were in the area well, the, the uh, alleged cartel guys that were in the area, they all quickly jumped into a, a vehicle and sped away from the scene before the uh, Mexican law enforcement authorities are, arrived on scene. And, and I think, the, from what I understand, the migrants scurried away as well. So if I was them, I probably would have beat feet across the river pretty quick before the cartel. You know, and who knows why, why they were being attacked by the cartel? You know, were they being robbed? Were they... Um, not supposed to cross yet, and so they were trying to stop them because they hadn't paid their their crossing fees, or you know, who knows why they were not there. But this guy had a gun at, in his waistband and a machete in his hand, and he was literally attacking, striking this guy with the machete, striking the migrant with the machete. And so, you know, the the soldier did what I think any normal person would do in that situation. He put a stop to it. 
how many shots were fired? To my knowledge, there was a single shot fired. Oh, wow. Uh, Bob Price from Breitbart.com uh, joining us on 710KURV. It was a story you may have heard earlier of a Texas National Guard soldier who fired across the border at a suspected cartel operative in Mexico. And this was around the El Paso area, right? Yes, and, and so uh, according to um, El Paso Matters, a pretty liberal news website there in El Paso, uh, they quoted Democrat State Senator Cesar Blanco as, you know, politicizing this effort and saying, you know, basically that the Texas National Guard and the state of Texas are escalating the, the use of force in the area and, quote, we are not at war with Mexico. Well, this wasn't anything about being at war with Mexico. This was stopping a violent assault against some innocent people. Yeah, and we're getting into that uh, knee-jerk drama, I guess, that we were mentioning at the beginning of the of the segment here. So, uh, first off, were any laws broken by doing this, and what have officials on both sides of the border said about this so far? Well, there's not much being said on the Mexican side, which I think is very interesting, uh, very telling. Uh, the the mayor of Juarez basically said no comment. Um, the president of Mexico, when when we asked him about that this morning during his morning his daily news conference, uh, acknowledged that they're investigating that this may have been part of a possible assault, a response to an assault. So um, there's that little extra piece of information there. Um, as for the rules of engagement, I have not yet been able to find out technically what the rules of engagement are. I did learn from a Border Patrol source that if they witness something like that, uh, they are to consider there not to be a border there. Uh, you know, Basically, if they see someone's life in danger, they're to take what action, short of crossing the border, um, take what action they can from their side just to stop it. Now, I don't know if that applies to the Texas National Guard, what the Texas National Guard's rules of engagement are. I haven't been able to get a clear answer to that, but I'm working on it. And as far as uh, people on our side of the border who may or may not be activists or people who may be condemning some of these actions, what have they been saying? Well, the, um, uh, the Border Network for Human Rights, based in El Paso, came out and uh, also attacked the, the, the state of Texas and the guards and said, we're deeply appalled by the actions of the Texas National Guard. The actions that probably saved at least one person's life or saved them from severe injury. I guess he thought that the guardsmen should just stand by and let them hack this guy to death with a machete. Um, but, you know, it, it's the same thing. It's that rush to judgment. People want to believe what they want to believe, and they don't wait for the facts to come out. And, and that's why we spend an inordinate amount of time working working our sources to try to get the exact information of what really happened. We got this from two independent uh, sources within the state of Texas, the government of the state of Texas. And, and um, you know, we're, this is what they say happened. It's fascinating that the leaders in Juarez didn't know uh, what was going on. Also, too, that the... What we were just talking about, about uh, international law and firing shot across the, the border, what that may or may not violate. I'm sure they're they're told, and unless it's a very dire circumstance or, or what have you, they wouldn't act uh, upon that at all unless they were fired upon first in a, in a, in a like a cartel versus border, border uh, National Guard situation, too. 
and three yeah how dare the how dare the national guard get in the way of cartel activity how, how dare they get right. in the way of go. what the cartel is up to across the border how dare they it's it's very strange because we hear reports quite frequently of border patrol agents being shot at from the Mexican side of the border. There was an incident last week in the San Diego sector uh, in the Ote Mountain region where um, where border patrol agents were fired on multiple times. They could see the muzzle flashes coming from that side of the border, um, and they knew the the weapon was being fired in their direction as they were trying to apprehend a group of migrants. And yet they did not return fire. And, you know, my question is, why would you allow these cartel gunmen to, to shoot at U.S. federal agents without returning fire? Now, maybe they couldn't clearly identify their target and they didn't feel they had a shot that was safe. Maybe there were other people around. Maybe there were potential dangers behind where the guy was shooting from. We don't know that. But but it we do know that they did not return fire and you know until Mexican authorities came in and, and chased the, the guys off or the guys left before Mexican authorities got there. But we hear frequently about shots being fired at Border Patrol agents, Texas DPS officers and even even National Guard soldiers. And uh, and so far I'm not aware of of shots being fired back across the border. But clearly this soldier felt someone's life was in immediate danger of being taken or serious bodily injury. And in Texas, just under regular Texas law, you're, you as a civilian are authorized to use deadly force to protect life or imminent danger. Bob Price from Breitbart.com, some of the border stories that you'll find there. Davis Rankin, we have time for one quick question. I was just curious if, if if we know uh, how soon after the event was reported, the people condemning it spoke, uh, and was it they didn't know what was going on? They just had a report of a shot, and they assumed it was out of order, or uh, they know they knew that this was done to save a life, and they still condemned it. Well, Davis, I. I I'm not sure the answer to that. I know the the incident took place, uh, I believe, on Saturday evening, and I believe it was on Sunday when Senator Blanco and uh, this gentleman from the uh, BNHR, um, Fernando Garcia, when they issued their statement. Garcia's organization went so far as to say that the injured man was, quote, practicing sports near the border while a group of migrants was crossing the border. (laughs) He was what? I, I'm not he sure what sport. sport. I'm not sure what sport hacking somebody with a machete is, but you know, there you go. This was a this was a cultural this was a cultural sword dance, obviously, and uh, our our guardsman got into the middle of that. How dare he? Well, you know, clearly the the migrants were not impressed with this sporting activity, and I I, <laughs> I for one am grateful that this Texas National Guard soldier bravely uh, saved those people's lives. God bless. I I don't like laughing and making light of events like this, but honestly, these things get so ridiculous so quickly when people jump to conclusions and put out these political statements because they're looking for points. Thanks a lot, Bob. Appreciate it as usual. Bob Price from Breitbart.com slash border. Breitbart.com slash border. That's where you can find this particular article, one of their Breitbart exclusives. You're listening to News Talk 710 KURV, your 956 drive home. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. 
I love your show. Hello. Hello. Having our voices heard. That's right. Yeah. You live and you learn. That's exactly right. This is our country. Use your heads on this stuff. Bingo. Sick of the talking heads. I agree with you. Talk, 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 talk. Hello. Hello. Yes, I'm here. I'm just listening. Yes. No. Yeah. No. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Everyone is so smart. They are so dumb. Who is she to judge? To stand up to do something. Thank you. The Valley's only News Talk station, News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Joining us on 710 KURV to talk about AI generated art and how it cannot be uh, copyrighted due to a new U.S. federal judge's ruling is John Rizvi, the patent professor, thepatentprofessor.com. He's our guest right now on your 956 Drive Home. So AI, I feel like this is the first big like judgment against AI, uh, John. It Yes, this is, uh, this is pretty big. Um, I, I don't agree with the, the fact of it being new, though, because, well, it's certainly a new judgment, but the doctrine that the judge is applying goes, is, has always been the case with copyright law, is that it's in the Constitution, it's, it's, it has to be, a, a human has to apply for a copyright. The, the Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, uh, specifically talks about authors and inventors and has been interpreted all the way back in an 1884 Supreme Court case to mean it has, the author has to be a human being. And in that case, the question was whether a camera whether a photograph could be entitled to copyright protection. And the court held that the camera itself is just a tool, but the human behind it is the one that's looking at the lighting, choosing the background, and making a lot of critical decisions that go into a photograph. So photographs are are copyrightable. Uh, So the court addressed it then. And then even more recently, there's the, the monkey selfie case, where I don't know if you remember, this was maybe five, six years ago, a monkey got a hold of a, of a cell phone, took a bunch of, of photographs, and they became extremely valuable. They, they went viral online. The owner of the cell phone tried to apply for a copyright and was denied because a monkey is, is not a human. And so now we're just facing this once again. Uh, this is a case where... Uh, Dr. Uh, Stephen Thaler invented what he called a creativity machine, and but that's not what he tried to patent and and copyright it. It, it wasn't. That's not in question whether what he created, the the software, whether that's protectable. But when he uses that software to create something uh, without any input, without any human input, and the software came up with a, a artwork, that is not protectable because the author in that case is not a human being. So any completely machine-created art is not protectable. That is fascinating uh, because of the way that AI works. Like You can set the guidelines for what the AI does, and you can get pretty specific with it, but it's still kind of a crapshoot as to what the result would be. And my, my next question would be, so couldn't the artist ask AI to come up with a piece of AI art and then just trace over it and use it and copyright it like that? Hmm. Hmm. Oh, well, hmm. again, that's, so then where's the, the creativity? That's what it comes down to. The, the way around ah, this is not, 
the, the, the way around this is going to be the more input you give, then that's the human element. And uh, those that proponents of, of protection for AI-created work are claiming that AI is a tool much like a paintbrush. But, you know, the paintbrush is not doing the painting. It's the human being that's directing the paintbrush. The problem becomes that, uh, you know, in that case, it's clear that the human has a lot of control over the final product, right? The brush doesn't do much on its own. Uh, the difference with AI is that the human input is really limited. So if you really want protection, the more time and effort and creativity you put into the prompt, in other words, the more you direct the computer, uh, the more your chances of being able to get copyright protection for the output because your creativity is in your directing the machine. The more you, you uh, take a, a, like a, a stand back and let the machine do all the work approach, the less likely you are going to be able to get protection. John Rizvi is an adjunct professor of patent law at Nova Southeastern Law School in Florida, our guest on your 956 drive home. Go ahead, Davey. Uh, professor, why couldn't somebody get AI to write a novel or whatever and then go back and fiddle around with it a little bit, put, put your touch on it, and then turn it in and say, yeah, I wrote this. I wrote all of this. But, uh, yeah. Phenomenal question. Um, and the answer is you absolutely can. And that's how people are getting around this requirement. So th there has to be human uh, uh, involvement. It can either be before AI creates the, the, the product or afterwards is fine, too. So you absolutely can have AI write the book, ChatGPT or whatever, write the book. And then when you go back afterwards and you make edits and changes and revisions, now you have the, the human element that's required to make you an author. The, this federal case that's, you know, that's in question, in this case, there was no, very little to no pre-robot input and almost no revisions afterwards. And that's what made it uh, difficult for the court to find any human authorship whatsoever. Let, let me ask a great that, question. You're absolutely right. That's one way around the, the, the limitation is to, to, to make edits after AI creates the product. Um, somebody writes an article for a law review, and it's a brilliant article that AI wrote, and then he goes back in and he does whatever he does. What percentage does it have to? It still seems like it's cheating no matter what. Uh, unless it's 100% output of a human being, you know, fiddling, fiddling around with it, it doesn't seem to... You're, uh, you're, you've nailed it. Like the, right, the, the brilliance might not be in the revisions. Like, hey, you know what? The AI, the robot created the brilliant article. Now this, the, the human being goes to the article, makes uh, revisions that are not really, that's not where the brilliance came from. But there's no, that, that's not the test for, uh, that's not the test for authorship. It's whether there's been human input and the courts have not been really, looking into, you know, it's a very low threshold of how much creativity is needed in order for yeah. the human being to yeah. be considered the author. So, so you're, you bring up a really good point. And, and that's, that's, these are ways around it. Uh, unfortunately, you know, what, the, the, as these cases get decided, uh, you know, artists and authors and inventors, 
they start learning more and more about what's required in order to, uh, you know, to, to be considered an author and to get protection. So that's the advice that, uh, that I'm giving now. Any AI-created work, certainly put time into post-creation edits because that's where you're going to be able to show human input. Did that get on? Because uh, you can take anybody's idea and kind of enhance it, and this is the AI is kind of a version of that. Uh, Davey, I'm sorry, we got to get going. We're uh, running out of time here. Professor know. Risby, thank you so much for for breaking down this uh, this concept and explaining the law to us. That's John Risby, the patent professor, adjunct professor of patent law at Nova Southeastern Law School in Florida, joining us at Newstalk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands, your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURB and KURV.com. Here's Zach. We traveled to Austin, our capital for the Lone Star State, and Scott Braddock from the Quorum Report as we need to get uh, caught up with everything that is the embattled Attorney General of the Mighty Republic of Texas. Ken Paxton. So, K-Onda, Mr. Braddock, what's going on up there in Austin? I had never heard the phrase bageled before. That's a tennis thing? <laughs> yeah, that's a tennis thing. Bagels right? and breadsticks. Okay. Breadsticks is, <laughs> okay. they only score once. Uh, okay. Well, well, it's all baked goods. Uh, I don't know. Is is Ken Paxton baked yet? I'm not sure. Uh, this whole deal is, um, it, this whole deal is really hard to try to, figure out. And, and here's why, uh, Davis and Zach, you know uh, that the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, who will serve as the judge in this impeachment trial uh, that starts next Tuesday after the holiday weekend, um, Patrick sort of is the Texas Senate. Is that fair? I mean, they, 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 even a lot of the Democrats, they just kind of do whatever he asks, uh, you know, depending on what the issue is. Um, they, whichever way he moves, they move that way, too. Um, if, uh, if Patrick says jump, the senators say how high. And what I've been trying to figure out and ferret out here is where does Dan Patrick want to go with this? I cannot figure it out. You know, there have been accusations, uh, of course, of, in, uh, un, you know, undue influence, right? And a conflict of interest, certainly, Davis, as you have pointed out, uh, with yeah. the $3 million that was just given to Patrick just recently uh, by the supporters of Ken Paxton, the same people who are running those uh, billboards and you know, text messages and social media posts they have to be paying millions of dollars for all that. And in the meantime, they're giving Patrick uh, not just uh, a $1 million check, but a $2 million loan. And I've started to think about that this way. What are the conditions for that loan? Does anybody know that other than Patrick and the people who gave him, you know, the $2 million loan? Um, if, uh, let me ask it this way. Hmm. I think it's a fair, I think it's a fair question. If the trial goes a certain way, is that loan forgiven? I don't know. Maybe he could talk about it. If maybe, maybe he could talk about it. If that, um, if it, you know, if the, if the gag order wasn't in place, that he put. Hey, look, 
He's the one who put the gag order in place. He could lift the gag order and answer that question. Um, so, look, I, I think where we are with this, you saw over the weekend, uh, maybe you saw it that I had reported uh, that there was increased chatter late last yeah. week uh, among top Republicans that Paxton was just going to quit to try to avoid this whole thing. You do know that back in 1917, uh, the only other statewide uh, office holder who was uh, impeached and there was a mm-hmm. trial in the Senate for him, Paul Ferguson, he tried that. He tried to resign. the day, he, And when he, when he resigned, it was the day before the trial was supposed to start. Um, and the Senate at that time, 100 years ago, uh, they proceeded with the trial anyway. And they voted to remove him and to never allow him to run again. Uh, but do you know that he did just run again? This is Texas. It's almost like no. there's no rules. So he did run again, but he lost. Um, and so it's like there's no rules. It's almost like uh, he said, well, yeah, but you say I can't run again, but that's just like your opinion, man. And I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> um, the uh, attorney general came out and said, of course, that uh, that he's not. Well, he didn't actually say he's not resigning. His attorney said he wasn't resigning. Uh, Paxton said some version of he wasn't going to stop fighting for conservative values. And the lieutenant mm-hmm. governor took issue. Uh, lieutenant governor took issue with what I had reported because what I had said was, and I was offering some analysis. I was saying that there may be some back channel communication happening between. Patrick and Paxton, maybe Patrick is trying to signal to Paxton that he could save everybody a lot of trouble if he would just step aside and then maybe they could find some way to not have the trial. Uh, The name calling aside, I'll just say the lieutenant governor said that that wasn't true, that that's not happening. I do think it's possible, get this, I do think it's possible that both Patrick and Paxton probably violated Patrick's gag order by responding to my questions. Um, So that's where we are right now. Uh, I think the tide is starting to turn. A little bit, a lot of the uh, you know Republicans who had been defending Paxton um, around the state, and I don't mean these third-party astroturf groups. I mean other Republicans who said that maybe this was just some some sort of a a witch hunt. I think that more as more evidence has come out about you know what Paxton you know what Paxton's been up to. I think a lot of those Republicans are either changing their tune or their their you know their criticism of the impeachment has become muted. Joining us on 710KURV is Scott Braddock from the Corn Report up in Austin, and we're talking about the Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton, and all the trouble, drama that he's uh, gotten himself into these yeah. past several years. And uh, what uh, can you expand more on the on the rumors from earlier this week that he was just going to up and, and resign? That doesn't necessarily mean if, the, if that were, again, if that's something that he were to do, it's not like all the trouble would just go away. Mm-mm. Well, and that's the that's the key right he there. He still has uh, criminal Zach. problems. It, mm-hmm. He still he still would have criminal problems, and he would probably still have an impeachment problem. And it was very interesting uh, to see, you know, in the response to what I had reported, which was that he maybe was thinking about uh, resigning. Which again, he said that that's wrong. Um, but as soon as that was reported by me, you did have a source close to the Texas House impeachment managers, the prosecutors in this case, where they said. We don't care if it, they essentially said, we don't care if he resigns or not. We're still going to go to trial with this. We're still going to press for him to be removed. And we're still going to press for the Senate to declare him ineligible to run for office in Texas. Again, the, those folks, uh, you know, who have looked at the evidence and they have, uh, you know, released a lot of it at this point. At one, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, they dropped 4,000 pages worth of yeah. uh, documents uh, that have to do with, you know, the, the degree to which he was uh, trying to cover up his extramarital affair. 
and his relationship with this shady investor, the shady developer in Austin, a guy named Nate Paul, who has his own uh, investigations, uh, you know, of him to, of himself to deal with. Um, and uh, look, the, the the impeachment managers are making it clear that they think that he is that Paxton is not fit to uh, serve in any office, yeah. not just the office of the attorney general. Davis, go ahead. Uh, how in Washington, I have read that when the White House is unhappy with a particular cabinet member, or whatever, rather than have somebody tell them that they float a story that they float a story that sends a signal, suppose sends a signal that yeah. your time is up. Is, could that be going All on right. in Austin? That Paxton's time is up. Uh, look, I, I I think that these uh, folks who uh, are dug in in the House, these Republicans who want to see Paxton gone, they're dug in. Yeah. I don't think the lieutenant governor. I don't think the lieutenant governor has floated anything uh, publicly as far as a, a story. Um, but I do wonder if he's finding some way to signal to the Paxton, to both of them, by the way, uh, to Ken and to his wife, Angela Paxton, who of course is a state senator. I do wonder if you know Patrick's finding some way to signal to them. Uh, what you just said, that maybe your your time is up. We're not the lights. The party's over. Uh, has Paxton, uh, are, are the, the House members, is this personal with them? Uh, whether you intended to, I took took away from what you, your description of it, in part that the House members have a personal stake in this. It's not just doing their duty, uh, but, but, but there's more to it than that. But I, I don't know if, that's, if there's basis for that. Well, you remember that the way this got started in the Texas House was Paxton asked for taxpayers yeah. to be on the hook to settle his personal legal problems in that settlement with the whistleblowers who had uh, previously worked at his office. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's it, in reporting on this over the last few months, Davis, I think it's become pretty clear to me um, that it, it's not necessarily a personal thing, although I'm, I'm sure some of these members are taking it um, you know, personally that you have all these people attacking them as if there's some sort of liberals or something because they voted to yeah. impeach Ken Paxton. Um, but, but I think the, really the narrative here, the story that the truth is that, um, as they looked into why Paxton was asking for $3 million in tax money to be able to settle up this lawsuit, um, they came to the conclusion that no, not only should taxpayers like you and me not put the bill for Paxton's legal problems, but they also uncovered a lot of information that made them think uh, a lot of evidence that made them think uh -oh. that he should not be in office. And this, so they, they not only said, no, we're not going to fund your, uh, you know, your settlement, but we're also going to vote to impeach you. Seventy percent of Republicans uh, in the Texas House voted uh, along with the Democrats, a truly, you know, truly bipartisan vote and led by Republicans um, to impeach this guy. And now they're pressing forward with a trial in the Senate. And we're going to see that start to unfold uh, as soon as Tuesday when, uh, get this, Roughly 100 witnesses uh, who are slated to yeah. uh, testify on this trial. They're all supposed to show up at the Capitol on Tuesday. And yeah. it would be my understanding, it's my understanding that the lieutenant governor will swear everybody in at once to say, hey, everybody has to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth and all that. And also put them under uh, a rule that says that they're not allowed to talk to each other about what's going on in the trial. That happens all the time with these sorts of proceedings where uh, you don't want people checking story, you know, checking each other's stories and, and trying to compare notes. Instead, they just want people to go up on the witness stand when it's their turn, tell the truth about what they know, and then let the senators decide whether or not this guy should be removed from office. Yeah, any, any uh, 
Any truth to the claims that there were about 100 cones of silence made out of plexiglass uh, <laughs> being sent to Austin? <laughs> Maybe they should do that. Hey, uh, real quick, any any uh, any whisperings behind the scenes about what's supposed to be happening at the special session in the fall? Uh, in October, it sounds like we're going to be talking about school vouchers once again. I don't see any progress made by the governor on that. You know, he's been pushing this all year. Uh, trying to get the legislature to approve a school voucher program. Um, what I have heard, uh, Zach, lately uh, in the last couple of weeks about that is that the governor's team still expects that the Texas House is going to reject any kind of an effort to privatize uh, you know, uh, public education in Texas. Um, but I've also heard that it's possible that the governor will call another special session maybe next January or February, in the middle of the primary elections next year, oh, Lord. Uh, which, would re- which would really be putting all these people through the shredder once again. Doesn't that make them just mad at him for doing that to him? Oh, I sure hope so. Fun times, buddy. <laughs> Fun times. <laughs> yeah, Scott, yeah, thanks exactly. a lot, as usual. Uh, Scott Bragg from the Quorum Report up in Austin joining us on 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710KURV. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radiopotomy app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV.